All right. Uh, this morning's scripture reading comes from the book of John, uh, chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples were glad, when they saw the Lord, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we ask that you would, as you always are, be faithful to your promises, that you would meet us through your word and at your table, that you would meet us with your grace. Would you meet us with your love? Would you, Jesus, meet and greet us with your peace? And would you give us what we need this morning through your word? Uh, would you strengthen, increase, or give us faith for the first time? We pray it for our good and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It's great to be with you. And uh, Mac burst my bubble. I walked in and I was like, look, you guys have stars and tassels for me. This is fantastic. Thank you so much. He said, no, that was just a talent show. Um, so maybe not the tassels, but thank you so much for all your prayers uh, over these weeks and months for me and my family. We greatly, greatly appreciate them. And it is very, very nice to be officially on deck to be your pastor starting July 15. I am off the clock right now. So... July 15, bring it on. For now, we get to study God's word together, and I am grateful for that. Uh, grateful to be here. 
So I uh, spent Friday and Saturday in San Antonio working with the presbytery. They approved me. You're stuck with me. Uh, and then this is icing on the cake for me to get to come and worship with you and to reflect on God's word together. And so um, let's do that now. It's Easter season, as Mac reminded us. I hope you had a fantastic Easter day. Uh, my family had a pretty great Easter day and a good Easter week. Uh, Grace Moran, and by the way, kids, I'm so glad that you're in here. Here's a job that you can do to help you stay locked in. Count how many times I say Grace Moran instead of grace and peace. <laughs> my goal is zero. See how I do. Uh, I'm allowed to say Grace Moran right now because I'm talking about Grace Moran. We had a uh, Monday Thursday service that we get to share with an Episcopal church uh, in our town, and that was fantastic. We had a Good Friday service that we celebrated off-site from our usual worship, and then we had a Sunday morning Easter service, which was fantastic. And if you haven't yet had the privilege of walking through Holy Week by participating in multiple services with brothers and sisters, please avail yourself of that opportunity and see how God meets you in that. It's a fantastic way to prepare yourself uh, for the resurrection and for Easter Sunday morning. Uh, following Easter service, uh, we had a big lunch with lots of friends, and we were co-hosts. And so by the end of the day, Kathy and I collapsed on the couch, as we do every Easter evening, and sort of gave each other a look of, oh, that was awesome, but I'm glad it's over this year. I don't think that that is God's inter-Trinitarian dialogue after Easter Sunday. Kids, you probably know that our God is three in one, right? Who are the three persons of our God? Do you remember? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You got it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit love one another and talk to one another. And we know some of their conversations. We don't know all of their conversations. But that Easter evening, I don't think their conversation was, whew, glad that's over with. I think their conversation was more like, okay, that was good. Now we've got to get to work. We've got work to do. Let's get after it. And we can guess at that conversation because of this passage that we have. When Jesus appears to his disciples following his resurrection, he comes to them and he usually does these two things. He gives them a calling and then he gives them and equipping. He commissions them for a job, and then he equips them to get after the, with the ability to get after that job. There's a commissioning, and there's an equipping, and it reminds us that the mission doesn't end with Easter Sunday. It begins with Easter Sunday. If you look at this story, that's what we find. Jesus appears to his disciples. This is the evening of the first day, the first day of the rest of their lives, the first day of the rest of our lives. New creation has come in Jesus because he died for our sins and he has been raised for our life. It's the first day and the disciples are in a room and the door's locked and they're scared. There's some highly motivated religious leaders. There's some highly competent executioners out there. And the disciples are scared. The door is locked. Jesus isn't there, and then 
he is. He appears to his disciples. The risen Jesus. He was dead and now he is alive. And there he is standing in front of them. And he shows them his hands and the scars. And he says, peace be with you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the sorrows and the fears that those disciples must have been experiencing in that room? Their hopes had been dashed. Everything that they had believed in and given their lives for seemingly was gone. Jesus had died. The Messiah wasn't reigning. He was crucified. And into that sadness, into that sorrow, into that fear, into that space of uncertainty, Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you not only into their fears and sorrows, into their sense of guilt and shame, right? They had not done well for Jesus in his last hours. And the word that he brings them is not, where were you when I needed you most? Peace, my peace, I give to you. And friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, what church is all about, It's more than this, but it's not less. It's a relationship with Jesus in which he comes into your life, whether it's characterized by fear or doubt or hurt or shame, and he brings you peace. He brings you comfort. But this story isn't just about comfort. It's comfort for a reason. Jesus says, my peace I give you. And then he says it again, my peace is for you because as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And boy, we could spend so much time just on those few words. As the Father sent me, so I send you. You're going to need my peace because I have a job for you. Let's think about that job for a moment together. It's it's the work of God the Father. What is the work of God the Father? Friends, this is the story of the entire Bible. We're not going to go through it all this morning. Um, We're in John's gospel, and John summarizes it very well in a way that you might be familiar with. He says in chapter 3, verse 16 of his gospel, For God so loved the world, for God the Father so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That word everlasting life means life until the end of the ages, and it means life to the full. That everyone who believes in his son would have fullness of life. Friends, the work of God the Father is to execute on his love for his world and his people. He loved us. He lost us because of our own sin and rebellion, and he's going to get us back. And that is his work to bring his salvation, to bring reconciliation to us, forgiveness of our sins so that we can be restored into his good graces and experience his good presence. But he's not stopping there. He's going to restore and renew all things. He's going to fix what we've broken. That is his work. The character Samwise Gamgee in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if you're familiar puts it this way. He says, everything sad will someday come untrue. That's God's work. 
that everything sad will someday come untrue. And it's the work that God the Father gave to God the Son, to Jesus himself. Jesus came to make good on the Father's plan of salvation for us. And he accomplished it. He did it in his death and in his resurrection. The sin, our sin, that separates us from God. Jesus took it on himself. All the pain and hurt and evil of the world. He took it all on himself and he bore it on the cross. And he let it do its worst to him so that it can do no more to us. He did it. It's done. It's accomplished. And he rose triumphantly from the grave. Friends, Easter celebration is a celebration of the reality that Christ has done for us what we can't do for ourselves. And it's done. It's finished. And so what is Jesus doing? Because he's coming to his disciples and he says, the Father has given me work to do, and now I'm giving you work to do. Isn't that phenomenal? That the work of Jesus himself, he's now passing on to his disciples. He told his disciples this in John chapter 14. He said, you've seen me do great work, right? Greater work will you do. I'm going to give you my spirit. You're going to continue my work. And so we have the New Testament scriptures. We have the acts of the apostles, which really ought to be translated the acts of Jesus through his apostles. And what do Jesus' disciples do in the book of Acts? They take the good news of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, and they bear witness as far as they can go. That's their work. Not to get it done. It's done. Their work is to draw attention to it, to point and say, look, there's Jesus. That's what he did. Forgiveness and reconciliation can be yours in him. Go after him. How are they to bear witness? Well, Jesus says something uh, very challenging and strange in verse 23, doesn't he? If you forgive anyone their sin, he says to his disciples, those sins are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, they're not forgiven. Does that strike you as maybe not what you were expecting Jesus to say? Like, really, Jesus? So, like, if I wander out after worship and a couple of you are in an argument and I just walk up and I say, you know what, you, forgiven. You, nah, I don't think so. And that works? Like, no, only God can forgive sins, right? That's what Jesus claimed. That's why he got into so much trouble with the religious leaders. Because he says, I can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. You're right about that. And you're right about that. John is not giving us Jesus' words to say that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the authority to forgive or withhold somebody's sins. That's not what he's saying. That's God's work. So what is he saying? He is saying something about the role of leadership in the church um, when it comes to recognizing uh, and holding to God's standard of what needs to be forgiven and what doesn't. That's another sermon for another time. Uh, but the, the most significant implication of what Jesus is saying is that if we are followers of Jesus through faith, the way that we are able to bear witness to Jesus and his work is to point to him. 
See, let me ask you a question. How is your neighbor who has maybe never experienced Jesus or heard of where true life can come from, how is your neighbor going to hear and receive and make sense of and know that it matters, that God's salvation has been accomplished, his forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration has happened through a Jewish Messiah who was crucified by Roman soldiers and raised to new life in first century Palestine. How is that salvation reality going to get to your neighbor in any kind of way that makes sense? Answer, you and me and we together. A world that hasn't experienced yet the fullness of life in Jesus because they don't know about it are going to know about it through your life, through our life, through a group of people who believe that it actually happened and live in a compelling way and share this reality that forgiveness and restoration can be had in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're going to get it because you're going to tell them, you're going to show them, we're going to live in a way that points to the work that Jesus has accomplished. Does that make sense? The way that you extend forgiveness to somebody is to show them where it's found. And if we don't show them where it's found, they can't find it and they can't get it. The work that we have to do, friends, the privilege that we have is to bear witness, is to live as if it's true in such a way that somebody says, boy, I want what you have. What is it? that you have. And then we get to say, well, we have Jesus and all that comes with him. That's the job. What a job. Let's reflect for just a moment on the audacity that God has to give us this job. On the one hand, what a phenomenal opportunity. When I was uh, growing up, probably middle school age, but even younger, my father was a contractor, and so he would build homes and then sell them. And so my brother and my sister and I were hired by my dad to work in the family business, and he gave us real meaningful work to do. It was work that came with a paycheck. That was really nice. But it was a work that came with purpose because the painting that we were doing mattered, not just for us, but for the family business. The landscaping that we were doing mattered. So when we dug those holes in the wrong place, after my dad had dropped us off and left, and he came back, and the landscaping was a mess, it was a problem because he was trying to sell that house, right? This was real work that we were invited in to do. What a privilege. Friends, this is real work that God the Father is inviting us into to extend the work of his redemption by bearing witness to the reality of what Jesus has done for us and for his world. What a privilege. And what a challenge. Are you thinking right now, are you kidding me, Jesus? You've got the wrong entry-level worker. Do you know who I am? Do you know my track record? Jesus has far more 
confidence in his disciples than we often have in ourselves. I think we often underestimate the significance of Jesus' disciples in his own conviction. He's going to use his followers. It's the way God has always worked. It's the way he loves to work. Why? I think just because he's gracious and because he wants to invite us into the adventure with him. He wants to use us. But here's the deal. He knows we're unqualified, friends. You think you're unqualified? He knows all. He knows we're unqualified. He knows we're incapable. That's why he gives us his spirit here. He knows we need to be equipped, and so he's going to equip us. And I want to reflect for just a few minutes now on the equipping that he gives to Thomas and the implications that it has for us. Jesus equips Thomas with confident faith. If you're going to live as if this is true, you have to believe that it's true. And we're not talking about faith that leads to salvation only. We're talking about faith that leads to confident mission. How much faith does it take for your salvation to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose for your salvation? How much faith? Only this much. You have to let go of whatever else you've been holding on to and grab onto him. That's it. That's all it takes. And you know what? This and this, even that is a gift from God. That's all it takes. But Jesus wants so much more for you. He doesn't want the bare minimum of faith. He wants confident faith for you. For your own good and so you can get after the job that he has for you. To be excited, to be thrilled about who he is and what he's about. My family had the opportunity to go to Yosemite a few weeks ago and do some camping there. And as you uh, bike through the valley of Yosemite, you see these majestic cliffs. El Capitan, you've probably seen some of them and maybe you visited. At the very bottom of one of the cliffs is a rope climbing instructing class. And so you can see these instructors and all the ropes going up the rock. And you see these kids, these 8, 10, 12, 15-year-old kids who are just scampering up these rocks with the ropes. How much faith do you need in a climbing rope to get up a rock? You need at least a little bit of faith, right? But if you're that instructor, how much faith do you need in those ropes and in those holds so that you can invite 12-year-olds in to join you in doing a very, very dangerous activity? Right? You need a ton of faith so that you can be excited about the work that you're doing. Right? That's what Jesus wants for his disciples, not the bare minimum. He wants confident faith for you. And so he's going to equip us with that faith first by meeting us in our doubts. God bless Thomas. Right? Because Thomas says what so many of us feel and think so often. Unless I see your hands, Jesus. Unless, unless I can put my hand into your side. Man, the audacity of Thomas. Unless I can put my hand into your side, Jesus, I'm not going to believe. Thomas had doubts. Friends, do you have doubt? Jesus is coming to you and saying, if you have doubt, I know you have doubt. And that's where I'm going to meet you. Jesus doesn't want you to hide your doubt. He wants you to acknowledge it like Thomas does so that he can deal with it. Friends, Thomas had intellectual doubt. Right? Jesus 
dead people don't rise. And sometimes from our vantage point in history, we look back on the ancients and we say, well, the ancients, they were superstitious. And of course, it wasn't a problem for them that people who died could rise. Yeah, it was. They didn't believe that dead people rise any more than we believe that dead people rise. Thomas had an intellectual challenge, and Jesus met him. Thomas said, Jesus, here's what I need to see to get over my intellectual doubts. And Jesus came, and he showed him his hands and his side. So, friends, I hope this comes to you as a comfort and as an encouragement. Maybe you experienced Easter Sunday in a way that left you a little bit empty. Maybe you worshipped and you at some point had a moment of saying, I feel like I'm just going through the motions and I don't really know if I believe that Jesus did all this stuff. And if that's you, I want you to know that Jesus is going to meet you in that doubt. He's acknowledging that it can be hard to believe. It was hard for Thomas. Thomas had all the advantages you could possibly have. One, Jesus said to Thomas over and over and over, guess what, Thomas? I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to be raised. He told him. Peter and John and Mary had gone to the tomb and had experienced the reality of Jesus' resurrection and come and told everybody, and Thomas still says, nah, unless I see it, I won't believe. He had real doubt. Belief can be hard. Friends, we live in a world in which it's not only difficult to believe that somebody who has died could be raised. We live in a world in which it's difficult to believe that there is any God outside what we can see, feel, or touch at all. And that's the world that we live in. We live in what scholars call a secular age, and it doesn't mean that there's no belief possible. It just means that belief is contested. Right? There are all sorts of other things that you can believe. Kids, you've probably experienced this in your schools, maybe. You have a classmate who believes something else. Well, why is what the Bible says true and what my friend believes not true? I don't understand. Doubt can be real. Belief can be hard, and Jesus is going to meet us. Not just intellectual doubt. Friends, do you notice that Thomas has emotional doubt? The doubt that Thomas has is not born just of an inability to conceptualize how Jesus can be alive. It's an emotional doubt. How can my Lord and Savior who I've given my life to be gone now? And how can I believe that that can be reversed? John 20 begins with Mary weeping at the tomb. I don't know where they've taken my Lord. Do you have doubt that's born of emotional struggle and challenge in your life? I have a very good friend in our congregation whose two-year-old son was just diagnosed with a terminal genetic disease. Lord, how can I believe when this is what's happening? In my, how can I believe in a God of life when my experience is not life? Jesus meets Thomas in his emotional doubt. About 10 years ago, we were preparing to have our first worship service 
of our church plant in the Flatbush neighborhood of Brooklyn. I was going to preach my first sermon at the church plant. And eight years, eight days before that Easter Sunday sermon, my father passed away of a massive heart attack. And that first sermon was, by God's grace, not recorded because there wasn't much but tears. How can I believe, Jesus, you're raised from the dead when this just happened in my life? Can you relate to Thomas' emotional doubt? If you can, know that Jesus is going to meet you. He meets Thomas and he shows them the marks in his hand and his side, not just to say, here is empirical evidence that I'm alive, but to say, I am the suffering God who is now alive because I defeated death and suffering in my suffering. I took it on. I bore it. I'm not just the Lord who defeated death. I'm the Lord who defeated death by suffering. You can bring your doubts that are based on the emotional challenges of your life to Jesus, and he will meet you there, and he will equip you with faith. Friends, as you come to Jesus, what ought you to expect? Expect that he is going to meet you graciously. He's going to meet you graciously. Please, please, please don't hide your doubt if you have it. Because Jesus isn't afraid of your doubt. He comes to Thomas. And he says to Thomas the very thing that he said to his disciples who were where they should have been the week before, where Thomas should have been the week before. He gives them his very same peace. Thomas, doubter, my peace be with you. Thomas, you need to see my hands. Here they are. You need to touch my side. Here it is. Jesus is going to meet you graciously. He's going to meet you convincingly. Friends, do real business with your doubt this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you have questions, find an elder. Find somebody who you know in the congregation and you trust and ask them about who Jesus is and push into that reality. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you have doubts, don't hide from them. Don't sweep them under the rug and pretend that everything's okay. Jesus doesn't want just the bare minimum of faith for you. He wants confident faith so that you can be filled with his joy and so that you can get after his work. And to do that, he needs to equip you. And if you're going to be equipped, you need to be honest about where you are and come to him. Come to him with your doubts. If you have intellectual doubts, dig into those. Don't just say, well, dead people can't rise, case closed, no Jesus, no Christianity. Push into that. Do real business with your doubts because Jesus wants to convince you. And he promises you this. If you'll come to him honestly, he's going to meet you and he's going to give you everything that you need. Expect to Jesus to meet you graciously, convincingly, and challengingly. Know this. Jesus wants you to believe. And he wants you to have confident belief for your own good. And how he, he's going to call you on the question eventually. He's going to give you time to wrestle and find ways to do that. 
but know that he's going to call the question. Thomas, stop disbelieving and believe. It's time for you, Thomas, now. And Thomas, by God's grace, responds with the greatest confession that you find in all the gospel stories, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Friends, if you want Jesus to equip you for this work that he's graciously called you to, you've got to get to him. And this is where we're going to close this morning with a little bit of practical application. You've got to get to Jesus so that he can meet you and equip you. And where are you going to find him? John 20 tells us over and over and over, it repeats, on the first day. On the first day when the disciples were gathered, Jesus showed up where? Right in their midst. Friends, this is the first day, and you are gathered. If you want Jesus to meet you and equip you, show up at Sunday worship. Show up at Sunday worship, not just because that's what Christians do, but because Jesus is here. Because through the preached word, this is mysterious, I know, because I'm one of those people who are called to do this strange job of extending God's word. And it's not my words, but through the preached word, Jesus is going to meet you. I know, and you know, because you've experienced it. You've come into worship at one point or another with sorrow or doubt, and through God's preached word, Jesus has met you and you've left with joy. And it will happen. He will meet you here through his word and at his table. We're going to come to this table where Jesus says, by his spirit, he is present to meet you. Friends, show up on Sunday morning because if you're doubting and if your faith is just this much, there's somebody next to you who next to you whose faith is full. Lois Law is one of my favorite people at Grace Church of Marin. I'm allowed to say it because I'm talking about Grace Church of Marin kids. She's 92 years old and she invites me to come have lunch with her. And every time I have lunch with her, I'm reminded, oh, this is what I believe. Because look at what Lois has believed for 70 years of her life. Friends, if you need to meet Jesus, know that he'll meet you in worship and he'll often meet you through the person next to you as well as through his word and at his table. Friends, as Jesus meets you, he's going to call you to live like it's true, to get out there and to bear witness and to take that faith that he equips you with and offer it to somebody else for their good and for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for raising Jesus from the dead by your power. And thank you for inviting us into this grand adventure, not just of getting to experience your redemption and salvation, but getting to point to you, to bring our friends, and to show them where life is found. And so would you equip us with everything that we need for that task, and we'll give you the glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.